0: morning, everyone. Good Good to see you today. Last night, uh, I was going to bed and um, just checked the news before I went to bed. And if you did that, um, you went to bed with the news of yet another mass shooting. This one uh, was in El Paso yesterday, uh, apparently in a Walmart. I think uh, the the death toll now was 20, injured 26. So I went to bed with that news in my mind. And then I woke up, checked the news again. It turns out uh, late last night in Dayton, Ohio, there was another mass shooting. Uh, This one took the lives of six. Uh, I don't know how many are injured. And whenever this happens, and it's happening, of course, sadly, with greater frequency in our culture. And whenever this happens, uh, we're just left shaking our heads, um, not only in grief for the loss, but just trying to figure out what is going on and what, what can we do. When you ask the question, what can we do, you pretty quickly feel you know, really helpless about something like this. And the thought occurred to me this morning as I was you know, preparing to speak to you is we really, we've been looking in this series <clears throat> at two verses in the New Testament that summarize, summarizes not what we can do, but what God can do. And these are the verses in Galatians five twenty two through 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Wouldn't that be great if our culture was characterized by that list? I mean, let's be honest, wouldn't it be great if we were more characterized by that list? And this is a list of the kind of change that God's Spirit can bring about in a life, and as that multiplies over time, maybe even a culture. And it ends with the statement, against such things there is no law. In other words, you can't pass any laws to make these things happen. You know, in the wake of every shooting like this, of course, the debate goes to new laws, and maybe there's some that should be passed. But no amount of laws is ever going to change the human heart. That's because the way change really occurs is it never is enforced from the outside in. It always comes from the inside out. And that's what we've been looking at. So we've now come to the final item on the list, and that is self-control. The definition of self-control is pretty obvious. It's the ability to say either yes or no to your desires, to your impulses. Now this list that we've been looking at is not a... A random list. It's not just any order would be fine. No, there, there's an intentionality behind this order. So the question you have to ask is, why is self-control the last one? Why is it at the end of the list? Well, it's because this is not just a list for us to admire, for us to nod our heads in agreement at, for us to even say, oh, wouldn't that be great if our culture was more like that? Or wouldn't that be great if I was more like that? This is a list for us to do. So the idea is, having gone over this list now, it's time for us to act on it, to exercise self-control. Now, maybe you've already started on this. Maybe you've already started to take some action. You've decided that you really do, for example, maybe need to be more patient or more kind or, as we talked about last week, more gentle or more loving, the first one on the list. So if you've been working on this, let me just ask you a question. This is for you personally. How are you doing? Has it been successful? Maybe. But my guess is that it hasn't gone quite as well as you'd hoped it would go. Maybe you've made some important improvements, but it's quite possible that it hasn't been to the degree that you intended it to be. Why is that? Well, it's because of a word at the very beginning of this list, and that is the word fruit. This is a list of the fruit that God's spirit grows. What that means is we can't just simply will these things into existence any more than we can just tell fruit to suddenly appear. Both of these grow. So what's with the self-control then? If I can't can't just command these things to be, what does self-control have to do with this process? Well, it turns out that fruit, while it's not a direct effort, it is an indirect effort. God is in charge of growing fruit. And while we don't control fruit growing, we can't just make it happen, we do have important roles in the effort. We can do things that cooperate with God's fruit-growing plan, and, and as a result, we can see fruit go grow because of our efforts. We can plant seeds, and we can water, and we can fertilize, and we can prune, and we can pull weeds. Most people tend to take a direct approach to change, a non-fruit approach. They basically say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm never going to do that again. Instead, I'm going to start doing this good thing. I'm going to stop the bad thing, I'm going to start doing the good thing. And then they usually get pretty discouraged because change, like in growing fruit, is an indirect effort. It's an indirect process, not a direct process. So we need to understand the process that's involved and specifically the part that we do have control over, where it is that we can exercise self-control. Now, if we're going to understand the process, we need to first begin with the fact that we have lost self-control. So that's the first point in your listening guide, self-control lost. We have lost control. We've lost the ability to directly grow the kinds of goodness that we've been talking about over the last weeks. And the reason is because the soil of our hearts has become contaminated with sin. It's kind of like weeds now. Nobody really knows where weeds come from. How they get they're just they're just there. Nobody nobody plants weeds. They just the soil just comes with weeds. They're already in the soil. They just keep growing without any effort on our parts. And that's the way sin is in our heart. It's like weeds. It just it's there. And if we do nothing, it just grows and takes over. In fact, before the list of the fruit of the Spirit that we've been looking at, there's a list that precedes the list of the flesh. And we've read some of that before, but I want to look at this in a little more detail this morning. Because it describes in sobering detail the self-control that we've lost. We'll call this the weeds list. That's not what it's called, but this is the list of the weeds that just kind of grows in our own flesh, in our own hearts. Here's what we read in Galatians 5, 19-21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Everybody knows these. Sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we don't do everything on this list. But we know everything on this list pretty well. They're in the soil of our own flesh, of our own lives. Now, it's easy to kind of read through a list, especially a list this long, and kind of get the idea, it's like, okay, it's awful, I know, I got it. And you kind of check out about the fourth or the fifth word. But this list is really an accurate description of of us. There there are three semicolons in these verses. We'll, we've circled them here. Because these semicolons identify and separate the list into four categories. The first category is sexual morality. That's the first item on the list. And the reason it's on the top of the list is because historically this is the one that trips up the most amount of people. Sex outside of marriage is so common now that it really isn't even considered a sin anymore in our culture. I mean, that's a that's an old ancient idea of love. But it mars the soul with a degradation that just will not wash off, an impurity that leaves behind the film of a diminished understanding of our true, holy, sacred value before God. And of course, it's rarely just one act of sexual morality. Sexual desire leads to ever-increasing forms of sexual decline that ends up in, well, what it says here is outright debauchery. The word debauchery is used to describe someone for whom there no longer is any right or wrong in this area. There are no real boundaries anymore. And this is where sexual morality always goes. This person will do almost anything, as long as it gratifies them in the moment. Then there's the second category. It's the idolatry category. Idolatry is taking something in this world and treating it like God. It's elevating something to the position of God. Now, we don't do what ancients used to do, where we actually make idols of wood or stone and bow down before them. But we take something in this world that's visible, and we elevate ourselves in front of it. And we may not physically bow in front of it, but if you look at our lives and how we handle our resources and our time, you, anyone watching can tell pretty quickly that this thing is kind of the gravitational center of our life. And we organize everything around it. We are giving it God-like status. So we get into idolatry. Now, some take this category to the level of outright witchcraft, where they knowingly worship Satan. Actually, this is on the rise in our culture. But most people don't take it this far. Most people kind of unknowingly worship the enemy through the idols that he hides behind. You may not be aware of this, but in the New Testament, we are told that whenever someone elevates a physical item to God-level status and organizes their life around it and bows before it, what happens is demons gather behind that visible idol to receive the worship that really should have been God's but is now directed towards this idol. We don't realize that. But we do tend to wonder from time to time why these things that we worship tend to have such spell-like powers over us. It's because they really do. And then the third category is the broken relationships category. This gets the, the most words. These are the sins that tear relationships apart. First on the list is hatred. This is just anger towards somebody else. And that always never stays on the inside. It always comes out, and it causes discord or conflict between people. Now, jealousy is what drives a lot of this. We want what someone else has or what we observe other people having. And so, because of that, we get bitter on the inside and we are very unhappy. And therefore, it doesn't take much to set us off and we're just given to fits of rage. We just launch. And the rage feels justified because of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the belief that what we want matters most. What we want, we really deserve. And once we have that in place, well, then it's only a matter of time before someone doesn't give us what we want, and we turn on them, and that causes dissension. Dissension defines that line that separates people. Conflict is the the issue. Dissension is the fact that there's now a chasm between us and somebody else. And it almost never stops there. All of these, they're like weeds. They grow. They get bigger. Dissension never just stops with, I'm mad at you and there's a separation between us, it, it always grows because we get others to join our side against them, and they get others to join their side against us. And what initially was two people upset with each other over something becomes three people, and five people, and ten people, and then it just sometimes grows. It produces factions. That's the word for that. That's groups of people mad and angry and upset with each other. Does that sound like our culture at all? And this ends up leaving us with a very sad, really sad, empty life. And so as time goes on, we just get more and more irritated with the success of others that we see, with any kind of happiness that we see, and we just burn with envy every time we see it. Now, these first three categories of sinful desire always leave a person diminished. They promise to fulfill. They promise to bring some happiness, but they always take more than they give. And this, these patterns, they end up leaving a person feeling trapped and desperate, and that usually leads to the fourth category, which is addictions. Addictions is kind of where we all head as we lose more and more control. The idea is that I, I can't control this, I can't control that, but if I take this substance or do this act, I can feel good for five minutes or for an hour. I can control this small, little experience. That's what an addiction is. We are given two subcategories, chemical or sexual. Drunkenness represents the chemical category, all the chemicals that are used to make us feel free for just a little bit. Now, the price of that feeling of freedom is an awful price, and it exacts more and more. And then orgies, which is Greek, the Greek word for wild party that represents the sexual addictions. They really have the same goal, to feel better, just for a moment. And the like. The idea is that if you don't find your favorite sin on this list, don't necessarily feel really good about yourself. This is a pretty accurate description of the landscape of what's in all of our hearts and all of our flesh. There's more that can be said, but the idea is you get the point. Now, it turns out this list won't just ruin a life. It does that. It'll, it'll end up ruining an entire eternity. So at the end of this list, it says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. They don't get to hang out with God forever. Now, I know, I know that it's popular to assume everybody goes to heaven. Everybody gets to hang out with God forever but scripture makes it really clear that God will not spend eternity with people who live like this not because he's intolerant but because he's holy you see holiness and sin don't mix it's not just they're a bad mix they are anti each other it's kind of like light and dark you walk into a dark room you turn a light switch what happened to the dark it was destroyed by the light it's gone The holy God walks into the presence of sin. What happens to sin? It's destroyed. It's gone. Not because God is angry or mad, but just because of who he is and the nature of sin. The problem is, we're all like this. We're all sinful. Maybe the weeds are this high or they're this high. Maybe this variety and not so much that variety, but we all know this list. And if we do nothing... We will live this list, branching off in one way or the other and then eventually being spit out the bottom of this list into an eternity of isolation from God. Thankfully, this is not the only list that we read. The second list talks about self-control found. This list that we've just gone over is self-controlled lost. But as I said, thankfully... The next list, the one we've been looking at, is a, is a list of something really different. This list begins with the word but. One of the most important uses of the word but in all of Scripture. This is the way we are, but it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus is the one that can free us from list one and grow in us list two. He died for our sin so that our sin can be forgiven. He made it possible for the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside of our bodies. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God inside of us. The question, of course, is if holiness destroys sin, then how can the Holy Spirit take up residence in a sinful body like mine? Well, the reason is because Jesus is, is like a layer of insulation between our sin and God's holiness. His sacrifice, his death on our behalf, offers us grace. And that grace is, is a layer of insulation, insulation inside of us where the Holy Spirit can take resonance without destroying us, as sinful as we are. Kind of like the, the casing on a nuclear reactor. All that power is available because of the shielding. All of the power of the Holy Spirit, all of the presence of God is available because of the shielding of Jesus Christ. That's why the decision to follow Jesus comes with the Holy Spirit. You can't get the Holy Spirit out of the way. You don't want the nuclear reactor without the shielding. It's impossible. So when we decide to accept Jesus as our Savior, which means the only one who can forgive us, And our Lord, which means the only one who can lead us. Then Jesus becomes that layer of insulation and the Holy Spirit moves in. And he represents a competing set of desires that are there to counter the sinful desires of our flesh that are already there. They don't go away. They're still in the soil. And so now we have a real fight on our hand. Before, we didn't stand a chance against our sinful desires. I mean, we could exercise our willpower, but it never would get rid of these. The only question was, how bad would it get? How tall would the weed grow? But the control that Jesus offers is not a direct self-control. It's the indirect kind of self-control. We can't directly choose love over hatred or kindness over envy. But like it is when we grow fruit, we can choose to do the things that allows God to grow these qualities inside of us that replace the qualities on the, second li- on the first list. This is why it says, again, at the end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. You can't command these qualities into exist. You have to cooperate with God's Spirit inside of you to grow these things like fruit. Now, if over time, like it is with fruit there is zero evidence of the change represented by these fruits, then it can only mean one thing. The Holy Spirit isn't there. Now, it doesn't say in the, the list that we just read that those who do any of these will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It says those who, what's the phrase, live like this. What this is saying is those who have a pattern of life like this and they, are, they are, have no interest in changing. These are patterns of life, not individual struggles. If that's true, if someone has patterns of life like this, then the Holy Spirit isn't there. Because if the Holy Spirit is present in a life, then over time, the patterns change, not instantly. It's like growing a tree. You You don't walk out the next day and expect it to have fruit, but you eventually expect it to have fruit. If not, then something's off. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, by by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. we're not really familiar with these particular kinds, so let me give you a more local example. If the label on the tree says orange tree, and you look up at the fruit growing on the tree and it's an avocado, which are you going to believe? The fruit, Right? The label means, oh, it must be mislabeled, because the fruit tells the truth. You can mislabel a tree, but the fruit never lies. It's an avocado tree. It's the same thing with us as people. It doesn't matter whether someone says they are a Christian or not. The fruit always tells the truth. So if your life is not moving towards the list of the fruit of the Spirit and away from the list of the flesh, then you have real reason for concern. Again, this is not that you never do any of the bad things and only ever do the good things. No, this this is talking about movement, the direction of your life over time. So what can a person do? The next two verses after the list of the fruit of the Spirit tell us specifically what we can do to cooperate with God's Spirit to grow this fruit. These are specific steps that we do have self-control over. Here's what it says, Galatians 5, 24 through 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you want to grow the fruit, this is what you need to do. The fruit of the Spirit grows in the lives of those who do their daily life in step, it says, with the Spirit. This is often referred to in the New Testament, as walking in the Spirit. What does that mean? It sounds kind of mysterious, but it's not. It's very practical. Let me explain it this way. If, if after this service, I start walking, let's say, that way, I start heading north on Gothard, and you wanted to walk with me, talk with me, how would that occur? How would you walk with me? Well, to even care, you'd first have to decide that you wanted to walk with me right? You'd have to do something other than who knows where he's going. You'd want to catch up and walk with me. Then you'd have to notice, specifically, where am I going? And then you'd have to start going there. You'd have to take a number of steps to do that, in my direction, in order to walk with me. It's the same process with the Holy Spirit. It's no more mysterious than that. To make it really clear, I, want, I want to break, it's, it's described in these verses. I want to break it down into four very clear steps. Step number one is you have to first decide to belong. You have to first decide whether or not you really do want to belong to Christ Jesus. Because that's the only way the Holy Spirit's going to take up residence in a life. You have to accept the insulation of God's grace and his son Jesus Christ in order to receive the Holy Spirit. That's how the tree that grows the fruits of the Spirit gets planted in your life and in my life. Now, deciding that you want to do less less of list number one and more of list number two is not this decision. That's deciding to become a better person. That's fine. But there, trust me, there is no power in that decision. There's short-term power, but there's no long-term power. Only Jesus can grow the fruit of the Spirit because only he can give us the Holy Spirit. But you have to understand, this is not a... Check the box kind of deciding. Because part of deciding to belong to Christ is to decide as it says that you are willing to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Put very simply, you want the items on list number one to be dead and gone. That's what you want. Now they don't just wither up and die because you want it, but it starts there. What that means practically is you want to be done with everything on list one. You don't want to hang out with a single one. You don't want to toy with a single one. You don't want to get close to any one of these at any time. You want them dead, crucified with Christ. You want them in the ground like he was. Now, this, this is a big moment decision that's followed by smaller moments of decision. Because these things don't die quickly. You know, the crucifixion of Christ was a six hour long, horrible event. For six hours, Jesus, in agony, hung on that cross while the blood drained from his body. And after six hours, he gave up his spirit and he died. So crucifixion is a, is a long process. In his case, it's actually quicker than a lot. It was six hours. But for us, how long does it take to crucify the desires of our flesh? As long as we have a flesh a lifetime. That's why Jesus tells those who follow him that they need to take up their cross how often? Daily. What that means is every morning you and I wake up, the weeds are growing. Every morning. I don't care what you did yesterday. I don't care how amazing you were yesterday. The weeds are growing today. And so every single day, usually throughout the day, you and I have to decide, you know what? I I don't want to do that. I don't want that to be true of me anymore. Every day we take up our cross. We decide daily whether or not we want the fruit of the Spirit. We want to belong to Christ. And this is important because the Holy Spirit will not counter our will. He is not a force that moves in and we become robots doing everything that God wants us to do. No, he's a force that moves in to help us in the direction of doing what is right. But we have to decide. We want that. And that's not just one, it is one big decision, but it's not just one big decision. It's a moment-by-moment, daily, taking-up-your-cross kind of decision. He will not counter your will. We must first decide, and then decide, and then decide again. Actually, the baptism Elliot was talking about, that marks publicly the big decision. The point where you stand up in front of everyone and say, you know what? I'm so sick of list one. I want list two, and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And then you wake up the next morning, and there's nobody there to clap, and you have to decide, okay, do I still want to be done with list one today? And do I still want list two today? And then you have to wake up the next, and we just have to keep deciding it. And when we, and when we make the wrong decision, we just have to get back on track and keep deciding it, just keep deciding. And then step number two is you ask for direction. He asked the Holy Spirit for direction. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? It says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What this is saying is, since you've decided to live your life by what the Spirit desires, and not what your flesh does, you need to figure out where he's going. What does he want? Not generally, but as specific as you can. You know, if you're again, if you're going to walk with me, you need to know more than, I think, Bevan headed north. You need to know more than just the generalities. You need to know specifically, where am I going so that you can walk with me? It's the same with the Holy Spirit. How can you know this afternoon in your life where the Holy Spirit is walking if you're going to walk with him? How would you know that? I mean, you can't see him. He's a spirit. You can ask, which I recommend you do, Holy Spirit, give me direction, and you're not going to hear anything. Because the way the Holy Spirit speaks is through the words of the Bible. That's his primary language. So we sit down with the Bible, and we read a part of it. And before we read, we ask, Holy Spirit, I I could use some direction. And then after we read, we think about what we've read, and we say, Holy Spirit, what, what should I do? I want some direction. We ask, and then we listen. This is why we need to spend time reading God's Word. Daily is preferable. And then praying. It's not because we need to learn more spiritual ideas and platitudes. It's it's very practically about checking in with the Holy Spirit about your day and your life and what you're struggling with and ask Him, what's one thing at least that I could do to keep in step? Now, let's say, for example, I want to become friends with and walk with and be influenced by someone that is a German speaker. They only speak German. But I decide, you know what, I don't want to I don't want to learn German. That's a lot of effort. Well then you would have a right to question I don't think you really want to be influenced by this person because this person only speaks German. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks Bible that's his language. If you're not spending time learning what the Bible says, you're not really that serious about walking in the Holy Spirit. Now, he is capable of speaking more than Bible, but usually it's at the point where you're mid-flight after you've just jumped off a cliff. Hey, don't do that. Uh, We need to learn God's Word. If you ask and then listen... He will prompt you to act. That brings us to the third step. Act on the direction. Notice it says we keep in step with the Spirit. This is really important. We don't keep in thought with the Spirit. You don't read God's Word so you can say, oh, good thoughts. I'll keep those deep thoughts with me as I go into my day. No, it's so you can take a step. If we want the Holy Spirit to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives to replace the acts of the flesh, then we need to do it. We need to act on what he says. This is very important to understand. Probably one of the most important things for you to get if, if you're, you've recently made a decision to follow Jesus Christ or even if you've done it for a long time and you're just not growing. This could be where you're not growing. So listen to this. When you read the Bible or listen to a teaching from the Bible, like something like this, the most important thing, is not to remember everything you've heard. The most important thing is to pick out at least one step you can take. You you don't want to leave here without at least one idea of one thing you might be able to do today or this week. You don't want to sit down with a Bible and walk away with, yeah, I don't know. Come up with something. What's one thing you can do? Now, if your knowledge of the Bible gets too far beyond your doing of the Bible, it's like over-fertilizing the tree. Fruit doesn't grow if there's too much fertilizer. Now, we will probably always know more than we're doing. That's because of the struggle of the flesh. But a lot of people make this mistake. They think that learning more about the Bible means that they're growing. It doesn't. All it means is they're learning more about the Bible. It's the doing that brings the growing. Now, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, but I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, if, if you're going to hang with me for the full 30, 35 minutes, the Holy Spirit will put something in your mind if you ask him that's very practical, one thing, one step, one act, and then do it. Don't, don't wait. Start moving. Now, don't wait for clarity. You know, I'm the kind of person I like. I like. I mean, I would like a map of the Holy Spirit. I would. I would like that, with decades. But all I get is walk with me. Well, where are we going? Walk with me. But what's around the corner? Walk with me. Really? Yep. Walk with me. <laughs> That's what you get. So don't wait for certainty. This is a step by step walk, not a wait till I understand and know it all. What matters most is that you take a step of action because you're trying to obey the Holy Spirit. And whenever you do that, he's pleased. And if, if you got it wrong, he'll correct you. Do your best. Take a step. And then you, when you do that, the fruit that he is nourishing in you is nourished. It's growing. Now, if you don't act or you do the opposite of what he desires, Scripture says that he is grieved. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. He's inside of us. And he's crying. What happens when somebody grieves you? Well, you you stop talking, right? You you, you pull back. If if you have kindness to you, which the Holy Spirit does, you, you stop pestering them. You give them their space. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit will not pester us. He, he is not a belligerent presence inside of us. He, he is God's presence of kindness and love and patience. And whenever we grieve him, he gives us our space. But when we do that, list number one starts resurging. And list number two, the fruit starts to wither. What should you do then? When you realize, uh-oh, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. I just grieved the Holy Spirit. Well, just confess your sin and get back on track. That's all you need to do. You know, if you get lost driving this afternoon, do you pull over to the side of the road and say, oh, I can't drive. And you call someone and say, you know what? I'm lost again. I've had it with driving. Come pick me up. No, if you get lost, you figure out where you are and you get back on track. This is what walking with the Spirit is. It is a continual getting back on track because we're always getting off track. And then you just get back on track. You don't have to earn your way back to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do three days or five weeks of penance before the Holy Spirit stops pouting. He's grieving. He's not pouting. He's right there. As soon as you turn back to him and say, Holy Spirit, would you forgive me? He's like, yep, let's keep going. We're not going to talk about that again. We'll just keep going. He's right there. The fourth point is repeat. Do this, all three of these, over and over and over again. How many steps does it take to walk with someone? A lot. Definitely more than one, as far as they're going. Fruit doesn't just suddenly appear on trees. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't just suddenly show up. It's grown over time. If you will walk with the Spirit, not just make an occasional lunge His direction when your life is falling apart, You will over time. You'll you'll see the buds begin to form on the end of your life. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit first begin to grow. But you have to keep walking. It's just like weeds. You you can't just walk away from the field. The weeds are going to take over. This passage of Scripture that we've been looking at ends these two lists and this instruction of what self-control looks like, how we keep in step with the Spirit, with a very important warning. Here's what verse 26 says of Galatians 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another, each other. Why does it say this? Again, none of this is random. This is not just, you know, 14 random things to do. This, this is all cohesive thought. This list is here. These, these, this, this is at the end because these are the two top reasons why we stop walking in the Spirit. Reason number one is we become conceited. We get arrogant. We get proud. We don't think we need to check in him with anymore. What happens? You start walking with the Spirit. Things start changing. And about the time things start changing, you think, I got this. And you don't got this. You're just getting a lot of help. But we become conceited when we're doing good, when things are going good, when we're growing. We don't think we need his help anymore. And so, we stop walking with him, and he, he does what he always does. He honors our wishes, and before long, we're, well, we're back in a mess. We're back usually into a relational mess. That's these next ones, provoking and envying each other. This is the second biggest reason why people stop walking with the Spirit. They get distracted by a conflict with somebody. They get hurt by somebody. They get angry at somebody. They get wronged by somebody, and that so consumes their heart that they just stop walking with the Holy Spirit. Then the fruit that the Spirit was growing starts to wither. I want you to understand as we wrap up this series, being a Christian is not about moral effort and exercising our natural self-control. It's about God actually coming into your life like a shielded nuclear reactor. (laughs) That's why it says we live by the Spirit. He is the power. It's His power that changes us, not ours. But we do have a role. We do exercise our self-control to walk with Him step by step, to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is our last message on these verses. So I thought it'd be a good thing to do as we end is to read these together. So I'd like to ask everyone to stand. We're going to read these verses together, and then I'm going to close us in prayer. So we'll put the verses on the screen behind you. Galatians 5, 23 through 23, uh, 22 through 23. Let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law join me in prayer holy spirit we long for these things to be true of us we would love for more and more of this fruit to be growing in our lives and we recognize that only you can do this we we can't will this into existence and jesus we thank you for the price that you paid to create the shield, the installation that allows the presence of the Holy Spirit to literally reside inside our lives. And we wake up so many days and we face so many situations and we just ignore your presence, Holy Spirit. Help us, remind us to check in with you, to listen to you, to ask what you want us to do. And then as best we understand to take that step and then take the next one. We ask that you would grow this fruit in us in great measure. And we pray that this would multiply in this community, that a groundswell of change would sweep this nation. It's evident that we need this. We thank you for the gifts that you've offered and the hope that there is, not in ourselves, not in our flesh, but in your forgiveness and in your power. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.